Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. So today I had the great opportunity to interview one of my former students, Shannon Rosedale, and this happens over a phone call. So it'll be maybe a little less quality than what you're used to on this particular podcast as um, we didn't have all the mics out face-to-face in person, but man, the conversation is so good. I, I was just incredibly blessed by the conversation and also just like, Uh, talking to a former student who's doing what I believe is such important work and just um, so educated on it too. Um, Super proud of her and super excited for you to get um, this episode and and check it out. So uh, here it is, my conversation with Shannon Rosedale. All right, so I'm here with Shannon Rosedale and uh, Shannon occupies a unique, uh, I guess, reality for like our connectedness. She's a former student in my youth group way back in the day. Shannon's like a full-fledged adult now, but like I think what 15 <laughs> or 16-year-old Shannon would that have been the, around the time? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's crazy to think back to those days and um even think about like how different of a person I am now from when I was your youth pastor. That was like mm-hmm. the first full-time youth pastor job I had, so I'm confident I made yeah, all kinds of mistakes. No, we weren't married yet. We got married. <laughs> Brittany and I got married while we were Uh, there at that church so like it's just wild to even think back and be like wow I wonder what Shannon like thinks of me and all of the like ways I was a pastor (laughs) then and then like I don't know it's just funny as a youth pastor to think about that but um but we've stayed connected via just like social media here and there and um, I know you've been doing some really interesting work in Texas and I guess I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, your work. You had actually made a Facebook post that made me reach out to you and just kind of want to know a little bit about the work you were doing. So maybe um, the first thing you can do is introduce people to yourself a little bit and um, what exactly the nature of your job is. Yeah. So I work for a social service agency, um, a big nonprofit, and we do everything from working with people experiencing homelessness to veterans, Um, to refugees and immigrants, um, whether they are being resettled initially or they've been here, uh, you know, for decades, we get to work with them or people, uh, you know, looking to go through the citizenship process or any other immigration needs, as well as just your basic, you know, social services, um, everything from case management, financial assistance, as well as long-term case management. And so that's where my job kind of gets to focus is I work on our research and innovation team. So a big focus of my job is to come up with new solutions um, that can help end poverty for people, and then also policy and advocacy. So I get to, one, design or kind of tinker with social service programs, um, whether that's you know a national program, a local program, or something we've created, and then also get to see how does that impact people at a local level, a state level, nationally, um, how can we change the narrative around poverty in general, you know, poverty looks different for everybody, Um, and it's something that specifically as Christians we're called to address and not ignore. So that's kind of what I get to do every day, day in and day out. That's so cool. That's that. that, I'm sure that has some very fulfilling 
parts of it and some very challenging and stressful parts of it would be my guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so when politicians change um, any policy or things like that, you're probably one of the first per people who are kind of aware of like the ins and outs of the details of different legislation because you're actually trying to innovate how that, how to react to that. Would that be a good way of understanding like, yeah, how absolutely. organizations react to some of the changing opportunities that exist out there for people uh, that absolutely. are that need? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so you're whenever something, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, whenever, so if it's, um, you know, it could be state, it could be local, it could be, be national. And so since we focus on such a broad, um, you know, kind of topic of poverty, again, it could look like digging into SNAP or what was formerly called food stamps. Yeah. Um, it could be welfare reform, but it could also be something like foster care reform. You know, how is this one new piece of legislation going to impact foster care families, kids all across? And what does that mean for people that we're serving or working with? Um, but it could also be, you know, workforce development. What is going on and what changes, again, legislatively? Or what do we see on the ground that if something changed in legislation, it would benefit people? So it's kind of the top down and bottom up. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. That, um, that brings me to your post, I guess. One of the things I've yeah. been reflecting on a lot lately is kind of our refugee crisis worldwide, but then also our own um, realities that exist at our southern border as a country. And um, even yesterday, today we're recording this on a Monday, by the way, the Monday after the Super Bowl. And um, Yesterday, mm -hmm. we've been in this series at the Belong Collective called um, uh, Advent Aftermath, and we're just kind of following the stories that happen after um, the Advent, you know, after Jesus is born mm -hmm. and the time leading up to Jesus being born. And so all these stories of Jesus's youth that we typically kind of gloss over or we don't really go into the nitty gritty of the details. And one of the things we covered yesterday was that Jesus was a refugee, like had to flee, yeah. had to flee into Egypt. And we, we talked about that story at depth yesterday. And just the call that we have to, first of all, it's, it seems pretty thorough throughout the Bible, our call to care for the foreigner, for the refugee, yeah. and ultimately for the least of these in every sense of the least of these. But, but certainly God's heart seems to be with the person who's been displaced from their particular homeland or, um, you know, just their home and potentially even displaced in a hurry and, and, and have nothing maybe even, but what they have brought with them. And so when I saw your post, I was actually in the framework of somewhat that, you know, um, sermon coming up and in mind when I reached out to you and I was like, this will be an interesting conversation. So you said in the post and I'll just read part of it. Um, the past 16 mm -hmm. weeks have been exhausting. They've been chaotic and nonstop. On September 26th, President Trump issued Executive Order 13888, requiring states and localities to provide written consent for refugee resettlement. I will save you the, or the agonizing details, but it's been one of the toughest battles I've experienced in my five years doing this work. So can, can you explain really quick what Executive uh, Order 13888 was addressing like what were the problems it might be addressing what exactly is the legislation for those people who just are completely unaware of this executive order obviously yeah. most people are going on about their lives they have no clue and a lot of times what is you know i guess um in in these you know executive orders or in um 
legislation that's passed and, and such, whether that is locally um, or nationally. But um, obviously this particular executive order has made your job a little harder. So I'm um, <laughs> curious yeah. to know um, uh, what exactly is in it and, and what it's reacting to. Yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of to start, I guess, back in the beginning, um, you know, early on in our country, um, we decided that we would uh, we would welcome refugees, we would resettle refugees, and that it was an act of um, legislation passed by Congress to say that, you know, this is something that we as America are agreeing to and, and believe, you know, in our core that this country was built by refugees, it was built by immigrants, and let's continue to welcome people in. Um, you know, in that mindset. And so the Refugee Relief Act um, of 1953 kind of started that, um, where it gave Congress the ability to, you know, allow refugee resettlement, but then also gave, um, you know, Congress and the president the ability to set a limit or a cap for how many refugees should be admitted to. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, you know, that's the legal obligation and the legislative um, kind of authority that gives our country the right and the ability to resettle refugees and so when that first happened, you know, that became a trend of this nation. We welcomed people. There's a process in place. We partnered with foreign countries. And so something that um, kind of gets into the executive order uh, 13888 is that a lot of people don't necessarily know the process of how refugees get admitted, um, as well as that there's a difference between a refugee, an asylee, an immigrant, um, as well as a few different populations within that. And so refugees, you know, they are a different group of people. They are not specifically the people that, you know, the news talks about crossing the border or anything like that. Um, it is a separate group of people that have been, um, you know, they've been verified, they've been classified as a refugee um, overseas as well as by our own Department of State. And so when somebody's declared a refugee, you know, they are fleeing persecution. It could be based on race, political, religion, um, something that they are no longer able to stay in their home country or their home place because of this persecution, this fear. Um, it is an imminent threat. They have to leave. And again, that could be, you know, war or somebody has taken over their own country. That's something we see a lot of that I think people kind of forget, you know, we are in 2020 and yet there are still places where people who have lived for centuries cannot call home even though it is their own land. Mm. Um, and that's something, again, you know, that they are being forced to flee. Um, we see people that live in refugee camps, so that's a lot of what's going on in Syria. Um, but then you also have people who flee, you know, from the Asian minor countries and go to a different place like Singapore or Thailand, and they're living in an urban city. And so they are still on the run or still don't have a place, but they're forced to kind of live in this urban environment as well. Um, again, they have to seek and apply for status. Um, there is a 15-step process for a refugee to even get into a country. Mm -hmm. um, specifically here in the United States, it's a 15-step process, and refugees don't get to pick where they go. Um, which is kind of the other thing that over the past, probably about five years now, um, we really started hearing more and more of this rhetoric that, you know, refugees um, are going to have ISIS members sneaking in through the refugee process, so we have to shut the borders. Um, again, that was about 2015, 2016, um, right after the Paris attack, and um, where we saw, you know, yeah. refugees going into other countries. Um, and again, they weren't technically refugees, they were asylees. 
Um, okay. So there's just a lot of rhetoric around this group of people and that we should be afraid. We need to pause this program. Um, you know, this is a similar argument that came out during uh, 2001 with um, after 9-11. And again, we paused the program then. We evaluated it. We vetted it as a country. And the president and Congress said, it's okay, we can continue. And so we did. Um, however, after this time in 2015, 2016 is when we started seeing that rhetoric kind of building more and more. And, you know, there's a lot of other language and rhetoric in our country um, just kind of fear-based. And that turned into um, some states and some governors saying, you know, I want to close down our borders. I don't think we should allow refugees to enter. Unfortunately, mm. states don't have the right to close their own borders. It's a, you know, United States of America. And so yeah. when people come into the United States, that's kind of um, where, where we get to state rights with that. So with who can come and, come, come and go into their own individual state. And so refugees, you know, they are vetted again. They don't get to pick which country they're going to. And so if they happen to come to America, um, you know, that's usually determined because they already have family here. That family is usually already established in the community. Um, again, these are people who have gone through some of the most horrific trauma um, that we just can't even fathom here and that's not to you know say that Americans um, or anybody living here have not experienced traumatic things and that you know we don't have you know poverty or devastation here but the type of things that we hear people coming over here um, experiencing it's just it is emptiness and it is darkness and it is just a whole new level of devastation um, you know kids watching their families getting slaughtered in front of them um, and just forced to run. And, and that's something that, you know, it just weighs a lot. Um, and so when people get here, when they go through the refugee process and they get placed here and say they get placed um, with an agency, um, like the one that I work for, which is a designated refugee resettlement agency, you know, they get here and they are assisted. They are connected to resources. They're connected to their community if it already exists here. Um, and refugees are one of the most self-sufficient groups. Um, within about six months, we see people, you know, employed. Um, they are making their own money. They are established. They are not using government assistance. I mean, like, they are integrated. They have, you know, businesses and homes, and it's, it's just incredible to imagine, you know, fleeing your home, everything you've known, learning a new language, giving up everything, and then being successful. It's just, it's incredible. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. Um, yeah. So, um Anyway, so they get here, so that's kind of the process of, of it. But this um, executive order came into place because President Trump um, felt that local cities and states didn't have the ability to really consult or, you know, work with the refugee resettlement agencies. And so the executive order um, 1388 um, is, was supposed to be giving states and localities the right to say, yes, we do welcome refugees into our area. Um, politically so speaking, it would also give them the inverse to say, no, we are not yes, welcoming. Correct. Exactly. Is, that, is that what you're also saying? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it's, um, it's specified in the uh, executive order that the state governor, um, or the local CEO of the local designation, um, and this vague language kind of gives them to the, the stress of it all, um, have the right to say yes or to no. And that is it for that fiscal year then. Um, that state is then allowed to resettle refugees or not. 
And so that started kind of this whole thing of, okay, we have to get a governor who's already outspoken against refugees, um, who has already said they do not want them here um, because of previous things that they have done. You know, we have to now get them to sign a letter saying, yes, they are welcome. Um, and then along with that, the locality. And so in the beginning, it was being interpreted, you know, oh, it must be a mayor of a city. And so people, you know, all across the nation and every single state, people were, you know, working together and they were working with their mayors and they were working with their governors to get these letters signed. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, after weeks of that, um, it came out that that interpretation was incorrect and it's actually going to be county officials. And so it's just this constant thing of, you know, you're trying to navigate, you're trying to do what the government um, has told you to do, and then all of a sudden it changes. Mm. Um, and so with that, it just, you know, the added stress of, of what that caused for not only the people on the ground doing the work, um, but people that were continually serving refugees at the time. Um, you know, you never knew kind of what, we don't always know what the actions of our government or the media mean to our clients, too. Um, because they're hearing that narrative and that rhetoric, too. Um, and a lot of times, you know, we, in our own privilege, can look at that and say, wow, that really sucks, or I thought, like, that's so incorrect, or that's wrong. But for somebody to hear that, you know, that's talking about themselves. That's, you know, a country and a state and a city saying, no, you're not welcome here as a person. Um, and again, these aren't people who, you know, just decided one day to pack up their lives and come here. Um, they had to go through years and years of vetting, of, you know, security backgrounds. Um, and, again, if you don't pass one of the security measures, then you have to start all over again. Um, it's not an easy thing. And so if you time out or it took too long to vet you, you have to start all over again. Mm -hmm. and you, so, yeah. So it can be a lot. Um, and so that's a big concern, too, is just kind of the stress and the weight of carrying that of, you know, I, I want to believe and I want to say that, this person, um, you know, is acting on the better half of, of, you know, their people, the people that they represent. And then you hear some conversations and you're like, but you're not even basing this decision on facts. You know, that's just an assumption that you have that's incorrect. And mm. so there's a balance, too, of how do I educate this person without insulting them. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's kind of a big piece wow. of, of what that is and what it was doing so so is every state currently kind of trying to figure out where their governor stands on this i would assume or at least like agencies within each every within each state i'm sure are trying to determine exactly where their governor stands on this because this went into effect or uh, back in september right so it was issued back back in september um, and okay. that we've had 90 days to kind of get it done oh, okay. and so that meant um Ironically, the day that it was um, given the 90 days meant that the deadline would fall on Christmas. Um, oh, and so, perfect. you know, when you're in a religious yeah. organization, you're kind of looking at that and you're like, you, <laughs> you really want to shut the door on refugees? Like, you're doing it on alternate day. On you know, Christmas. Christ who was a Jeez. refugee on his wow. birthday, or what we celebrate as birthday. <laughs> and so, um, halfway through that, you know, we started working towards that date. And then again, something would change and it's, you know, oh, actually, now you have till January. Um, and so it was kind of working and working. And again, you know, things have changed. And now we have a deadline of January 21st. And so that kind of gave us a little bit more room. Um, and then in the middle of all of that chaos, um, a lawsuit was filed saying that, you know, this is not the legal right. Um, uh, the executive office can't actually, you know, kind of overstep Congress's ability within this. And, and due process comes into play of, 
you know, can a president tell states, give states the authority to make this decision? And so it got all tied up in the courts. Um, and so the day before, about, let's see, I think it was January 17th, um, the court ruled that this was unconstitutional and that this actually, um, we aren't sure that this is in the president's rights and executive's ability. And so that paused everything. And so at that time, there were about 41 governors who had signed on and said, yes, we will re welcome refugees. We will, you know, let them come in. Um, but then when the court issued um, its standing, it kind of held the executive order. And so for the time being, um, we can continue acting as normal. We can continue resettling as normal for the rest of this fiscal year um, and kind until, of continue moving until, until that the court either the... rules on it. Okay. Yeah, so it'll have to go to either the appeals court or something like that. But, you know, you're doing all of this, and then it's also an election year coming up. And so what does that mean? And, yeah. and how do people really do this? And, again, you know, regardless of the intent, I can't obviously know President Trump's in intention when he made this. But regardless of whatever the intention was um, or wasn't, 41 governors stood up and said, we will rest welcome refugees and that that's obviously was not all one side or the other yeah. um, you know it was it was bipartisan um and that just goes to show that people do understand you know it is our call and it is our duty um as well as some states you know you forget about again as the united states of america you are not your own independent country you know you don't get to close your borders um to other people and so if you know you're in North Carolina and the governor says yes, and then South Carolina says no, you can't stop people from moving across that border once they, you know, enter into the country. And so yeah. that was another component of this. Of, you know, so if, you know, a state says no and its bordering states all say yes, and a refugee is resettled in, you know, a bordering state that says yes, nothing is going to be able to stop that person or that family from joining their family in the state that said no. And so now you've dismantled that state that has said no, you've dismantled the refugee resettlement programs within there. So now that refugee family is without resources. They are going to still come because their family is there and they want to be unified. They want to enter into the community. They want to be established. You know, they want that. They desire that support system too. And so then we have this secondary migration issue of, well, if one state says no and others say yes and people are still coming, how do we serve them? Now is when we start talking about, well, that's, you know, taxpayer dollars are going to be going into that. You know, we're going to have to be using public benefits to support refugees because the state decided to, you know, remove its support. Mm. Um, so that's a whole other kind of interesting layer to it. But, again, you know, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to this is something that not only, you know, United States Congress has said that we have the ability to do and should be, um, you know, should be able to do, but then also from a faith perspective, you know, like you were saying, like we are called to welcome the stranger. You know, Matthew 25 clearly states that. And again, throughout the Bible, people were welcomed in and they were taking care, they were taking care of each other. They were supporting one another. Um, you know, and that's just at the most basic level of what we, we as Christians should be doing. Um, but then also, you know, ironically, we always would go back to for years and years, you know, think about all the times, you know, whether it was in our youth group when we'd go to Nicaragua or, yeah. you know, other places where it's like we spent so much time praying for these countries across the world, for them to come to know Jesus, for these people to come to know Jesus. And we would send people out, you know, 
and God answered that by bringing people to us. And we want to say no, like that, yeah. that just blows my mind <laughs> where yeah. it's like, we prayed for decades as a church, as a, you know, international church, as a Christian church here for people to know Jesus. And then when God's like, okay, you know, I'm not going to save you guys. So you don't have to get on a plane and fly away. I'm going to bring them to your home. And we're yeah. like, oh no, that's not what we wanted. We wanted to go there so that, you know, we didn't have to discomfort ourselves. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's always interesting to did kind of we, see that from the Christian side. Did we go to Nicaragua together? I thought we did, right? You were at Nic- on the Nicaragua yeah, trip? Yeah, I think yeah. once or twice. So. Yeah, I think you, I don't know if I went twice with you or just once. Like, I can't remember. I know Hillary was on one of those trips, and I want to say you were on Yeah, I think Hillary trip. and I went on the first one. Yeah, yeah. The first time we went was with you, and yeah. then we kept going. We went a few more times. But. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Awesome. Yeah, I mean... Oh, I mean, you said so much there and so much good stuff um, in the sense of um, connecting it to our faith. What as yeah. someone who so like. Just to be real, for some people, mm-hmm. life is going so fast and they have so much that they're yeah. focused on that, like they turn on the news and there's already so much drama in their life or so mm-hmm. much stuff requiring their attention that ultimately it's like, I don't have time for an impeachment trial for, um, uh, uh, for a presidential debate, you know, uh, for, um, for what, you know, this politician tweeted and what this politician tweeted in response. And let alone do I have time for like how refugees are resettled. It's like, I'd like to, I'd like to care about that, but it's just so hard to, to have the energy and look, I, I actually really sympathize with those people. I've got three kids. I mean, oh, it's absolutely. like, it's like life is going and, and it can be hard to, to stay connected to what matters most. But obviously in this particular uh, conversation, you're like intimately connected to it even more so mm-hmm. than, than very, very much more so than most people. How, one of the things that's really affected me in this particular conversation about refugee and immigrant, I want to be clear because I do think they are different statuses. Like, you know, like, like you, yeah. like you clearly, you know, meant to, to separate the different things. Cause I do think refugee resettlement, there's been, like you said, so much vetting in that process. And, um, and, mm-hmm. and as you said, I think asylum seeker is a different status and yep. you know, someone just desiring to immigrate to the United States for a, yep. a job or for a better life or whatever. These are all, you know, and I'm sure there's multiple other buckets that, 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 you know, and criteria that people fall into, but, but ultimately one of the things that's been really disheartening for me, and this is even someone who's, who's not super connected to this in the way you are, but someone who's grew, grew up in church has a faith is just how apathetic the church has been. And, and if not apathetic, mm-hmm. almost completely on the other side of like allowing fear to be the narrative that they buy into. Like, can you speak about how that, you know, and I'm, and I'm obviously talking about the broader church. There's some churches that are doing great work yeah. on this. I don't want to like, I don't want to, um, you know, uh, say every church out there doesn't care about this or every Christian out there. So that's not what I'm trying to say, but I'm saying it seems like when you look at polling numbers at large, the church is like apathetic or even like responding in fear when it comes to mm-hmm. these, these conversations about, um, refugee, asylum seeker, and immigrant resettlement. And so can you share how that makes you feel as someone who loves Jesus and who's also intimately connected to these people's lives and, and this work? 
Yeah. So I have um, some family members who definitely fall into that uh, that other camp. Of, you know, <laughs> they are they love Jesus, and yeah, you're sitting there and you're like, how how do you not get this? Like I don't I don't understand um, that this is a you know Christian's calling to welcome and to love and to to take care of, and a lot of it is just this fear based of well, what does it mean for me? You know, what am I going to lose out on? Or again, it is that fear of, but I've seen, you know, reports of terrorism. I've seen these things, and it's like, how do we put aside the fear that we have of this world and focus instead of, you know, what God has called us to do? Um, you know, and I think that's such a, it's such a hard thing, and it comes down to, you know, our own comfort and our own, um, you know, a lot of times privilege that we don't have to think about it, that we can turn things off. Um, and not worry about it. And again, that is not to say that everybody should be full-time, you know, 100% diving into this and following every single tweet and article and and thing that comes out. Because again, you know, we have to protect our own hearts too. Um, You know, I think Proverbs talks about that in a way that we don't think about, you know, that protect your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And that, you know, goes from everything to relationships and, you know, how, how you interact with people, but also, you know, what are you consuming and is that good for you? And news right now is, is not probably protecting your heart for a lot of people. Um, and so I think, you know, there's, there's a few different aspects of that, of one thing, you know, God tells us not to fear the world. Like the only thing we should be fearing is him. And it is not out of a, you know, um, an angry or shameful or disappointed place, but of, you know, God, you are so mighty. I am, you know, in awe of you type of fear. And when we turn that into, you know, I'm afraid of this person instead, that's where I think that just boils up and the enemy just gets to sneak in there and continue festering that. Um, You know, I I, I turn it also for something for a lot of Christians. um, And shockingly, most people that are anti-immigrant or refugee are most likely pro-life. And I have never been able to understand that. I do not know how you can... um, rationalizing Mm -hmm. pro-life and, you know, wanting um, dignity and respect for every life, but you would not be, you know, praying those prayers if you were standing in Syria right now. And how do you determine that? How do you determine which life is worthy of protecting or defending? Because if you are out there marching on Capitol Hill saying, I believe that, you know, birth should happen, then that means you should be standing there saying, you know, the child who has watched their family get slaughtered in front of them has been, you know, vetted even to be determined that they are allowed to come to this country, and yet we say no. no. And so how, you know, how do you justify that? How do you say that it's, it's okay for one but not the other? You know, and I think a lot of times people kind of shun from that because, you know, things like racism get brought up then or, you know, fear of... Um, Islamophobia or different things where it's like, no, you're still talking about a person at the end of the day. And if you truly mean you are pro-life, that is not a pro-life if they are this type of way, if they look like this, if they, you know, are guaranteed to be this person when they grow up. It's, no, you believe that Jesus said every life is valuable, so we live by that. Um, And so I think that's a big part of it, too. And you know, even as a church, again, you know, going back to the irony of missionary work, where we'll say we'll go across and, you know, go spend two weeks, you know, loving and playing and praying and helping establish communities and churches, and that is great, and there's a place for that, but then if we don't come back and continue that by saying, like, yes, I will welcome and maybe be discomforted about something 
because these people could come here too. Um, you know, I think that that's another aspect of the church to consider as well. I think tangibly what that actually looks like, again, is just like praying through that, um, you know, asking God and being willing to say, I think I might be biased or I might have a prejudice against this or why do I question, you know, refugee admissions? Why am I scared of that? And, you know, it's mm. come down to race, you know, again, racism, some type of prejudice, but it could also be worshiping of security. You know, God did not call us to live a safe and comfortable life. Um, and so sometimes when we are concerned about things, there's definitely a reason for that. You know, God also called us to protect one another, um, to live in harmony, to, you know, not just be dormant. He, you know, said it was okay to have war in certain instances and, and to fight in certain times. And Jesus got angry, you know, but it's also not our our place to go against the other side of that, of when he has provided a way for this person, who are we to go against, you know, his, what he has ordained in that matter too. Yeah. Um, so that's, that I think is a big part of it is just also being willing as a church to say, like, what could we be doing? Um, it doesn't mean that you have to go out and volunteer with your local refugee resettlement agency, but it could just mean we're going to dedicate to pray for, you know. Um, a lot of times refugees are, again, they could be fleeing from religious persecution. And when we talked with our governor and stuff, you know, there's a big fear, again, of a certain population um, that has been described as the refugee in the media. Um, and, you know, when you actually look at the data, the majority of refugees coming that we've resettled or worked with are Christians from the Congo. And it's like, yeah. you, you want to say that we're a Christian nation, but you can't even accept your brothers and sisters just because they come from a different place. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so that's a lot of rambling, I know. No, but. it's so good. It's like I don't even want to, like, interrupt with the questions that I have as you're going. Like, I think, I think what you really are arguing for is, and something I say all the time is, like, um, all humanity, every single person is an image bearer of God, no matter what they've done, no matter yeah. what they're going to do, no matter their background or not. And I just, I can't understand why the church um, can't be the place that argues for the compassionate ethic when it comes to image mm -hmm. bearers. And not that that doesn't mean there may not be a reason for security that the government has to argue for. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But I don't oh, think absolutely. I don't think the, the church it, I don't think the church should be arguing that. And um, and some people will call me naive for that, and that's fine. But I guess I just come down to I don't ever see Jesus saying, well, "Let's be safe here." Like it seems like Jesus is always rolling the dice for compassion, and and um, mm -hmm. and and ultimately I think his followers um, are doing the same, and and uh, and, and that just it would just be very hard for me to, you know, like you reference the sheep and the goats. It's like, that's a, mm -hmm. that's a scary teaching. And, you know, we always, throw yeah. that, we always throw that into the parable camp because if it's a parable, we can just kind of look the other way and say, well, we're just not interpreting it right. But like, if you read that in context with all the other parables in the scriptures, it does not start out like a parable and it almost doesn't even seem like it is a parable. It seems like Jesus is teaching mm -hmm. point blank that, that message that it's not, this isn't to be like deciphered like some other parables are to be deciphered. Um, Jesus is clearly saying like, when you see people who are in need, you see me. And if you mm -hmm. can't see me, then there's something wrong with you. 
Like, like yeah. you, you need to be. And then like we, we have other passages that it's like, if you have the, 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 the means to meet someone else's need and you don't meet it, how can the love of God be in you? That's a legit question in mm-hmm. our scripture. And it's like, it's a question that should cause all of us, even those of us who feel like we're, we do have a compassion ethic to say, God, wow, okay, how can I expand my compassion ethic? Because there's certainly people mm-hmm. I come in contact with that I have the ability to help meet their need. And, and maybe I look the other way or I just convince myself I'm doing enough. And, um, and so like, I think that th- there's not a finish line there. The goal is that we would be continually yeah. expanding in our generosity and in our ability to see others and give others the attention we would give if Jesus was right in our midst. And, um, and oh, I, just, yeah. I just feel like right now, like we are, it, it seems to me like the church I grew up in, and, and I don't know if you resonate with this as much. I know you're from a different generation growing up in church. And I know in our youth group, we talked a lot about justice issues because um, that, mm-hmm. that was on my heart. And so that was something we talked about a lot. But like, I don't remember the church talking a lot about justice issues necessarily, but I do always remember the church talking about values and compassion and caring for mm-hmm. others and and loving even dangerously like and not necessarily like from a justice perspective necessarily but more just like this is what Jesus would have us do and i almost feel like we're just kind of excusing that away these days like well that doesn't fit oh, yeah. with what we need right now and it's like no that is what we need <laughs> like that's exactly what we mm-hmm. need right now i don't know um it's it's disheartening for me and, and I'm confident for you being as deeply connected as you are. It's, it's even uh, more difficult. Has that challenged your relationship to the church over the last five years? I'm just curious from a personal standpoint. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you yeah, go into so that think, a little bit? Uh, because I think there's some people listening who probably yeah. have had their connection to the church. And I mean, a lot of people will use the label like the evangelical church, but I guess just church in general, mm-hmm. like how has that challenged that? How are you navigating that? Yeah, so, you know, starting back, I think what you were saying of, you know, our youth group was definitely, I mean, we were reading Sean, you know, what's it, Sean King, uh, Shane Claiborne, yeah, there you go, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, in our book club and stuff, and again, we were, you know, let's go out, let's do this, like, let's serve, and, and let's be, you know, the hands and feet, and I think for me, you know, even within that time, because I, I worshipped so much of that, I didn't really see or connect the God part to it, and I missed so much of grace and where we are and not, you know, that was from ninth grade to probably my senior year of college of just believing this idea that, you know, social justice wasn't something that I needed to focus on in America. It was overseas. People needed me, you know, I needed to be the hands and feet, you know, in a third world country. That was where God, you know, that's where he would show up and what he would do and where he would fix. And it was just this blind side of like, no, this country is broken, and there are so many things that we have to fix here. Um, and not fix necessarily, but just minister to and preach and love and, yeah. you know, be the hands and feet here in our own neighborhood. And what does that look like? And I think, you know, that's that's part of it is, you know, as a church, we are called to be, you know, focused on social justice and all of these issues. And I think a lot of time, especially in this American church, it can either go one way where that's all we focal, you know, focus on and the other side of, there are just so many things. What do I do and how do I pick? And, mm. you know, I, I think tying even back to something you said before, you know, how do you determine where your attention goes? And, you know, not, I'm, again, not everybody needs to be going out on mission trips and stuff. And not everybody needs to be focused on, 
you know, feeding the hungry and loving the widow and visiting the, you know, those in prison, but we should all be trying at least one of those. And it doesn't mean then that the other person doing the other thing is now wrong. Um, And I think when you throw politics in in there, that's where we get this kind of warped thing of, well, no, I want to serve the homeless here. How can you be saying let's bring people into this country instead and focus on them? And it's like, that's the infinite amount of love of Jesus. Like, we might not be able to understand that, but that's God in action, is that he did not say, I can only focus on one group of people. He equipped hundreds and thousands and millions of us to love so many ways and so many different, um, you know, missions and, and groups of people, and that's why we can do things. And, you know, again, I have people that say, well, you clearly don't care about, um, you know, the veterans then because you want to use our money to, you know, serve refugees or to welcome the immigrants or, you know, what about um, the orphans here, that you know, those in foster care? And it's like, you know, back to the Facebook post, like, you know, I get to work on all of those issues and I see every single way that we are helping in a country, you know, to serve all of those populations. And I can tell you there are resources available for all of them and every group you know needs your support and needs your compassion and needs Mm. you know to be fighting alongside them for the social justice issue but it doesn't mean that you have to negate the other group that's doing something good too because that's just what god has placed on their heart or called them to do um, yeah, I found and I mean, that. Just imagine we, if the disciples argued over that, yeah. like what country they should go to. They split up, <laughs> and that's okay. We can yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> I found that most people arguing what aboutism, like just mm-hmm. like, and I and I hate to say it this way, but there's just there's some prejudice in their mind. Whether that is oh, a yeah. prejudice for this group that is so heavy because they're deeply connected to it that they just don't want to see any resources flow elsewhere, but they don't necessarily, they haven't connected the consequences of that reality um, for those other individuals or um, a prejudice that simply is they don't understand these other people. Maybe they're not connected to those stories or maybe the stories they have heard are just overtly negative and they don't, they don't understand that there are um, real needs that exist in that particular community. Mm -hmm. I I've, I've received even before with, you know, posts I've made about immigration. Um, well, what about the homeless, you know, here we got to take care of. And it's like, um, yeah, both. And like, why can't we do both? Yeah. Like, like, I don't, I don't think there, uh, there should be a limit to, um, our generosity, you know, in, no. in this reality of, of people who are at the margins, especially those, you know, who are coming from war-torn countries seeking refugee um, resettlement, who have been vetted, like you said, like all these all these check boxes. And I think a lot of people just buy into the notion that, well, that's not working. Those those people mm-hmm. have been vetted well. Or like this, if you had to say, here's three myths that people believe about refugees or immigrants or asylum seekers, whatever, whatever they would, whichever kind of subcategory you want to go into, um, what would those like top three myths that you hear and it kind of drives you crazy because you're like, Oh, that's so not how it works or that's so not true. Or like, I mean, cause we have a lot of, you know, uh, misinformation out there around all kinds of political realities, but I'm just curious on mm-hmm. this one, which ones with your expertise, you're like, I hear that so much and it's so 
wrong. And it doesn't have to be a top three. It could be a few, whatever you maybe pops yeah. in your head when I ask that question. So I think um, just sticking on the refugee issue, it's not confusing and all the, the different populations that, that fall under immigrants or asylee, but specifically with the refugee issue of, you know, number one is the safety concern or security issue. Or again, you know, it used to be, before President Trump was elected, it used to be a 13-step process. And so he's even increased the level of security. And so people, you know, saying, well, it's still not safe, it's still not safe. It's like, well, you're going against the president then, who stopped the entire refugee process for 120 days, found it to be okay, and still increased security measures. Like, that's, he, there are no, you know, loopholes in place. Well, I shouldn't say no loopholes. I'm sure somebody could find one. But... The reality of it, I mean, I the security that people have to go through to be vetted and to possibly get, you know, luckily drawn to come here is not a strategic measure. Like, you know, again, you don't get to pick which country you're being resettled in. And so if your home, you know, stances that people are going to come here and create terrorism or, you know, this is their, their one way to get in. It's like, absolutely not. Like, it's a luck of a draw that you get placed in the States and after you've gone through this security process. And part of that 15-step process that existed before President Trump and still exists today is that you have to be screened and the security step doesn't end once you get on that plane. Like, it continues once you're in this country. Mm. Um, as well as, you know, the, the type of people that are coming here of... You know, they're just coming here because that's the easiest way to do it. You know, the immigration process takes too long. And it's like these people have been waiting, again, starving. They have been living in camps. You know, we have um, clients that come here who share about how, you know, they had one bowl of rice for a week to survive on. And getting to come here is just like this amazement thing that I cannot even, ex- you know, explain the the amount and abundance here. Um so I think that's one part is just the, the security aspect of it. And, you know, people are coming here for, you know, um, what's the word, malicious intent or, you know, some some reason like that. And Yeah, now real just, quick, before, so, before yeah. you go on to the next one, uh, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I just wanted to yeah, ask a follow-up on that because you, you, you made it clear that people don't get to choose mm-hmm. um, America. I, I know for a while – and I don't know if this is still the case, there was a banned list of people that we were not accepting. Was that refugee, immigrant, asylum seeker, all of the above? I know um, there were a variety of countries on that list. Some were, um, I believe, uh, South American countries, but some were Middle Eastern countries. Uh, do, you, mm-hmm. do you know what I'm referencing? I think it was seven countries, if I remember yeah. correctly. Is that yeah, still so the there case? there was a Muslim ban. Um, it was kind of, it was dubbed the Muslim ban because uh, a lot of the countries happened to be, um, where they were a a primary, yeah, Muslim majority. And so, um, that, uh, happened in 2016, I believe 27 or 2017 when we stopped the, uh, halted the refugee program. And so at the time it was refugees and immigrants. Um, now it is just primarily, um, immigrants. And President Trump just updated it, adding in an expansion of it um, for immigrant visas. And so now it includes Etruria, um, Kyrgyzstan, Burma, Nigeria, um, Sudan, and Tanzania. Hmm. Um, and what were the well countries? What were the initial countries? Do you know offhand? Because I know there was one Latin American country. I want to yeah. say. 
Venezuela was on there. Um, okay. Let me. It's, it's okay if you don't know offhand. I mean, people can Google it. I, I just, I, I, I'm more. Wanted to know. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm more just interested in whether or not, I think sometimes like these things hit in waves and waves and waves and you're just kind of yeah. like, that's not happening anymore. But then it's like, no, that's still there. That's still a reality oh, that yeah. we have to deal with. Is that still a reality? Yeah. And so the other ones were, um, the original kind of seven of them were um, around Iran, Libya, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen, um, and then along with Venezuela and North Korea. Okay. So. Um, some of them were taken off, and again, it was challenged in court. But yeah, it definitely, it's, it's still a real thing. Um, you know, and again, you have people that have waited so many years to come and join their families, um, and it's just it's devastating for some to just you know be so close and then and get that door shut on them. Um, again, people, you know, on the refugee side where we had. You know, people willing to wanting to reunify with their families, with their kids, with their parents. And, you know, again, they've been vetted. They've been securely processed. And then something like that happens and you're just left waiting. Um, so if I'm a refugee yeah. from Yemen um, mm -hmm. and I, um, you know, find, uh, I guess, myself in a refugee camp, but my country of origin is Yemen, I would mm -hmm. have a difficult time finding refugee resettlement in the United States, or it would be absolutely impossible under the current, um, not protocol. under, I don't think so because it was, um, immigration visas and so okay. not necessarily refugees. So not refugees yeah, necessarily, so. but, but immigrate yeah. any immigration. So let's say, yeah. let's say some of my family had got here under refugee status and I wanted to join them as an immigrant. I would probably likely not be able to do that. Or that would be a difficult yeah. reality. Okay. Um, if you were not coming as a refugee. So if, there's yeah. different paths of it within the refugee. If, you know, say Brittany and the kids were here uh, and they came across as refugees, you might have all applied at the same time, um, but you might have been separated from them in that process. And so it could take a while or, you know, it could have to restart. But if most likely if your family applied as a refugee, you applied with them as a refugee too. Sure. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. But we see that, you know, often often too and, and that's I think kind of going on to this other myth of um, a lot of times especially in you know 2015 to probably 20 well even now we hear this um, idea that the average refugee is this Middle Eastern male coming over um, and then that is you know we see kids coming over here that again they applied with their family and they got through and their parents or one of their parents is still back in a camp or still separated from them and so you have kids coming over here, um, you know, by mm. themselves. And what do you do with a, you know, 10-year-old who is now in the country by themselves and has no other choice? They can't go back to the refugee camp. They can't go back to their home country, but now they're mm. here. And so there's um, a refugee program through the uh, State Department, too, that works specifically for refugee foster care kids. Mm. Wow. And so, you know, that's the other side of this is that, you know, people talk about, you know, international adoptions or caring for the youth and, and the child and the orphanage. Like we have kids here that are just as affected by these refugee, you know, programmatic decisions. Um, thankfully for this past one, it did not affect um, the kids coming over. And so that was a, a big blessing that um, 
kids were considered a um, special population, and so they would have been able to continue. But when we shut the refugee program down in 2017 to vet it, you know, that was the whole thing of these kids are literally waiting to board a plane or they're already here, and what happens then? They've been split up from their siblings. Um, you know, that's trauma all over again. Yeah. So, wow. You know, that's, that's definitely a component. Um, yeah, and a so, reality for so many kids. So a 10-year-old comes over here, I'm assuming – They've either been separated from their parents in the midst of conflict, um, probably war or whatever mm-hmm. conflict they've experienced, violence they've experienced, or they've very likely lost their parents to violence and maybe even are aware of that. Yeah. Um, and and they find themselves probably in a refugee camp applying for refugee status. And as a 10-year-old, mm-hmm. I mean, who can really grasp the concept of what that is? And then they find themselves yeah. in a whole new country and, uh, yep. and then they're put into a foster care system trying to place them in homes yep. would be my guess. Like the goal is to get them into, um, yeah, so there's specifically foster of, care. Okay. Um, kind of. Um, so the, the tricky side with that is that, um, a lot of times they can't be placed into adoption. Um, but it's a specific program for foster, refugee foster care kids. I understand. Um, so it's separate than a, the national system um, or yeah. a state-based system. But a lot of the kids, you can't technically put them up for adoption or, you know, facilitate adoptions because they might have a parent. And so they yeah. haven't given up custody of that child. Um, yeah. And so that's this thing, too, of, you know, you have a 10-year-old coming over here and who knows if they have a parent. They might. Um oh. But that kid has to, you know, balance that too. And it's just, I mean, it's incredible seeing the resiliency of these kids that come over here, but also, again, you know, the families in general. Um, But we have kids that, you know, they come through and they're placed in a foster, um, a refugee foster care family. Um, And, you know, they are graduating high school in, you know, three years and going on to college. Uh, It's, I mean, it blows my mind how incredible we just, resilient these kids are um yeah, and you so have much family trauma. too and this... so much trauma in their oh my god it's... and then they're just able to overcome that like wow yeah yeah and you i mean this is, kind of goes into the third thing again and a lot of times after i've kind of gone, gone through all the points i have with people of you know well what about this and here's this truth and here's this thing at the end of the day a lot of times i just say like have you ever met a refugee have you ever sat down and had coffee with one have you ever just you know, befriended someone that's different from you or their experience and heard what it was like, what they had to go through. You know, not only the mm. emotional and traumatic side, but just the process. Because so many people, especially here in this country, make, you know, decisions or stances and they've never heard or experienced the other side. Um, and that is such a big thing to actually put a face and a story and person to what you are supporting or not supporting. Um you know, again, and this is something that, and I'll say it on here too, because I've said it to him multiple times, my dad, you know, we'll go back and forth on this stuff. And, um, you know, I just remember the day I asked him, like, so are you telling me that if for some reason America was, you know, completely taken over and we were forced to run and flee, are you telling me you wouldn't try every single thing to get us out of this country? Like, I don't believe that. I know your love for me. I know your love for us as a family and for how much you have worked hard. And I just do not believe that at the end of the day, you would not try everything to protect us and to make sure we had a, you know, a prosperous life. And that is what these parents go through. You know, if 
if it is a parent with them, you know, they have to make the decision to flee, to run, to leave every single thing behind and hope that they get picked. Because, again, it's not every single person that goes to a refugee camp gets it. You know, it's, it's a small population that even gets put into the refugee um, resettlement programs, let alone those that even get to America. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, you're questioning another parent's decisions for, you know, protecting their children. And I, you know, I believe if my dad, if we, you know, were born in Iran and or in Syria and we were being prosecuted, I think he would try every single thing to help us. And that might look like becoming a refugee. And what would you do if that was split, you know? And again, you talk about the resiliency. You know, we have people that were, you know, surgeons in their home country to come here and not just one have to make that tough decision. But then they get here and the humility they have to walk in of knowing that they were, you know, a prestigious person with lots of respect and probably well-established to now, you know, the best we can offer for a job is working in a chicken factory, you know, for a meat processing plant. And like just the humility that that takes to serve your family and to love your kids, like that is the sacrifice of I care and love so deeply of like that's biblical love right there that you are willing to put aside yourself to take care of your family. And I mean, it just, it amazes me every time. Um, Wow. Yeah, just that was to a know great that answer. somebody has made that sacrifice. That was a great answer <laughs> to that question. I like that. One of the things yeah. I always tell people when it comes to issues of, you know, social justice especially is I don't think we change our mind because we get the right data in front of our eyes. I think yeah. we, mm-hmm. we change our mind when we are in relationship with people. Um, when, yeah. When we hear their stories and that's part of one of the goals of this podcast is just kind of to, to humanize these conversations a little bit, definitely to talk to people who are in different places, doing different things, pushing the boundaries a little bit for the sake of love and belonging. Mm-hmm. But, but also to kind of just say like, we need to hear stories. And then hopefully from those stories, it opens our heart up to maybe reconsidering the data that we've been handed or the, the way we've been handed to see the world and, and I think so yeah. often in my story, it's been when I've got to know somebody um, and, and they've, they've broken down some of what I've been handed on how to see them or how to see the world that um, mm-hmm. in those moments is when I often, I guess, am coming back to, huh, I wonder if. I wonder if I need to reconsider where I stand on this, you know, yeah. subject matter or oh, yeah. whatever. I mean, that that's so important. Is there a, is there a moment that connected you to this work or, I mean, this is kind of the type of work that in my opinion requires a little bit of a calling. Like it's not, it's not easy work. I'm sure there's times where you're pretty, <laughs> pretty depressed and you, while you do have those days where it's like, I guess I would say like, it seems to me like this work would be high highs and low lows. Like I'm sure there's like really high moments where a family gets placed or a child gets placed and you're just feeling really great about, you know, what your work has accomplished. And then there's probably other times where you're pulling your hair out and depressed because some person in a suit signed a piece of paper that ultimately 
affects so many people's lives and you got to be the one to let them know that or the one that, you know, um, ultimately tells them no or tells them that this isn't possible. That that's a, that's a heavy burden. And I find that like in those kind of work environments where it's heavy, high, high highs and low lows, usually those people need to be called to it or they can't stick in it very long. Um, do you have a moment of calling you felt like into this particular work or was there a catalyst for that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think one, and this will kind of tie into it, just want to go back to something you were just saying of, you know, changing people's minds and, and yeah. how does that, you know, changing our values and stuff and just tying into the question you just asked of like, that's, I think just where grace comes into it again of, yeah. you know, like, well, wait, like maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe, you know, it, Oh, let me, let me have grace for not only this person and their you know perspective, but like, I hope they have grace for me too that like I, I might yeah. be ignorant on something or I might be incorrect. And I think that just, you know, that ties into a lot of kind of where I've come from and, and where I stand on things with, you know, it has to be by grace and grace alone and through Jesus. And that, um, you know, when I left, uh, left good old Ashburn, I went to college. Um, you know, I started studying social work and thought I'm going to be a therapist or I'm going to help people. Um, or I'm going to be a missionary and I'm just going to go back overseas and continue to love people and work with people there. Because again, you know, that's, that's where I can be the hands and feet of Christ. Um, and I had such a warped understanding of, of anything within that and what grace even was. And um, it wasn't until my, uh, probably my junior year in a internship um, at a um, recovery center uh, for specializing on um, domestic violence, um, women that were being court ordered um, to go through drug treatment. Um, and I remember, you know, working with them and just thinking like, this is it, this is where I'm at, this is going to be great. Um, and, you know, when I tell my story of, or my testimony of coming to know Jesus, I really, you know, I don't really consider much of that up until probably 20, you know, 15. It's really when my life changed and started, you know, following God and, and understanding who he was and what this whole thing is. And so, you know, being 20 years old and thinking I'm going to save these people and I'm going to, you know, again, just the savior mentality of I can do this and I can change it. Um, And I'd work with these women and they'd come in and we'd go through a whole plan. And on the 28th day, you know, they would get ready to leave and the person to come pick them up would be their abuser. And I would just sit there and be like, what the hell are you doing? Like, man, what is going on? Like what happened to all of the work we just did? What happened to everything you said? Like, what are you doing? And not understanding that there was so much more outside of that and that I was not understanding where they were coming from. Like I did not have that background or knowledge of the things that were happening, not only in their own lives, but their generation. What have they experienced and what was going on in their community? And so I went back to one of my professors one day and was just like, I can't do this. Like nobody is listening to me. I know what's best. I don't understand what's going on. Mm. You know, I don't think I can be a therapist because I just want to tell people what to do and they, they don't care. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, you know, I mean, that's very, very much my personality. Like I, I can tell you what to do and I, I promise I have the answer. And if you just followed me, it'd be right. Um, again, that savior mentality. Really quick, really quick. Uh, do you know the Enneagram? Yeah. I do. <laughs> 
are, are this you... is probably somewhere in my Enneagram. I do not believe in it because I'm like, this is not fair. I that's know fine. that I'm not an eight. So you're not an eight? You're not an eight? I'm not an eight. Okay. No, okay. I, I was... know that's the only thing I know. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I wonder if Shannon's an eight. I'm an eight, so I didn't know if you were an eight. No. But I didn't know what you thought about I the Enneagram. It's, I, was, I was like, for six months long, I was like super skeptical of the Enneagram. So it's okay if you're skeptical of the Enneagram. It usually means I'm if very, you're... I'm actually... Yep. If you're skeptical, it usually means you're an eight, though. So, <laughs> well, uh, that goes back into all of like the. There's so much of like the church even worshiping the enneagram, and uh, anyways, oh, no, I'm speaking on a panel next week about uh, spiritual gifts versus the enneagram and where does God come into oh, it. Oh, so nice! It's, it's the whole thing. But so, if anybody's in forward sexes, come on down. But um, yes. <laughs> so sitting there talking to my professor, and I'm like, I just can't do this. And she said, You know, have you looked into what's going on in that community? Like, look at your clients and their demographics. And I was like, Okay, yeah. sure, whatever. And I saw that every single one of them came from legitimately within like a five mile radius of each other. And I was like, what the hell is happening in this neighborhood? Mm. And it turns out the male unemployment rate was so high in that area. And I was like, uh. what? So, so what's going on? And so as you like dive into it and find out that the male unemployment rate is so high. And so, you know, we can make some deductions here. Men might be turning to drugs and alcohol in order because that's the only thing that they can do out here in rural you know, Virginia, where there's yeah. not a lot of opportunities. And, you know, what does transportation mean? They are stuck in this community. Nobody can go and leave it. And so it's just this cycle of generational poverty, you know, just continuing and continuing. And the men are teaching them, you know, the boys and the girls are teaching the girls. And it, it just continues. And so what does that look like to break that? Um, and so that's when I started reading more into like, okay, what does a community-based social worker do? You know, what does that look like from that approach? And all of a sudden, you know, start diving into this policy side of it. And, you know, what are we doing as a nation or as a city to support each other and to really love each other as, you know, like the hands and feet of God? Um, he cared for all of the people, not just, you know, the Pharisees who, yeah, he had a whole mission to to kind of revolutionize their world, but also like, the poor or the abuser or, you know, the yeah. offender that is being in prison, like what happened in their life to get them to that place? And so just starting to ask this question of maybe I don't have all the answers because I can't see it because it's not something you can see. What if it is this generational thing or this community thing? And so that's um, kind of what started changing it. And then, um, you know, I graduated undergrad. I went to grad school. And as I was graduating, you know, I prayed in a very typical you know, again, savior mentality, God, I will be your hands and feet, send me wherever you want. And I thought he was going to send me um, to where I was doing mission work on and off throughout college in, in Uganda. And he said, in the most clearest way, you're going to Knoxville, Tennessee for grad school. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, mm. I'm not going to like white urban, <laughs> like suburbia. <laughs> and he called me there. And that was just incredible to get to see, you know, like, I was humbled a lot and walked in a lot of humility and just learned so much about who God was and what grace was and realized like this just pride and arrogance of I can save someone, I can do it, of not even knowing what I was saving them from was just like completely knocked me out. And so um, after graduating, I found this organization. Um, one of my professors had connected me here and just some of the research I was doing in grad school connected to a lot of what they were doing and just kind of got plugged in and uh, got a job offer and moved right out here after graduation. Uh, I called my parents actually as I was uh, about two weeks before graduation and said, I think I'm going to move to Texas for a job. And they're like, well, I thought you were moving back home or something else. And I was like, no, I'm up, you know, on the way to the airport for an interview. And that was uh, pretty sporadic and basically just 
since then got here and just learned like, you know, again, the assumptions that we have of people is just not the full story. And you have to just continue asking this question of, you know, why? Why is it like that? What happened in that person's life to make them think that or believe that? And, you know, that ties into those high highs and low lows of, you know, you see something and something so successful, whether it's around refugees or, you know, other people in poverty, um, whether it's a piece of legislation that passes or we get to develop a new program and actually have, you know, research and evidence that's saying these people's lives are changed. And that is incredible to just know that you got to be a piece of that story. And, you know, God used you in this tiny, tiny way to literally bring them closer to, you know, his purpose for them or, you know, restore dignity or they're encouraged their value and worth. And, and that is incredible. But then also those low lows where you're just sitting there and questioning, like, what on earth happened? Like, what could I have done differently? You know, again, and that's just where this, this lie again is like that savior mentality of something I could have done to change it. And that is just where at the end of the day, I have to go back to God and say, like, it is your plan. Like, ultimately, like, whatever has happened, whatever has done, like, I have to trust that you are bigger than this. And a lot of times the people in this work, you know, it is, you get burned out so fast, especially yeah. like with the media these days and, and conversations. And when you work in, you know, policy and advocacy and research, even when you go home, you know, those conversations continue because it's the news now or it's something that was posted or something happened and you don't really get to turn it off. And, yeah. you know, even church, going to church, people are talking about things and, you know, messages on certain stuff. And it's just this continual consumption at the end of the day. Like the only time you can find silence sometimes in peace is like, God, like, I know this is bigger than me. And I know this is bigger than us. And like when kingdom come and I pray it comes quick because it's getting yeah. crazy. Like it will look like heaven on earth. And like, that is what we get to rest in is that like the lowest lows, like the enemy schemes, man schemes, like still do not out triumph God's plan. And like God's goodness of what, you know, what Genesis should have originally looked like, what the like Garden of Eden was originally designed. Yeah. And so just resting in that, right? Like, we are fighting the good fight, and, like, that is what we get to end with, is that, like, good and faithful servant, like, you have served me, not man, not yourself. Like, that is what we get to rest in. So You're preaching, Shannon. Look at you. You know, I, again, I tell you, like, very different. The high school Shannon. You, know, <laughs> you must have had a good youth there. pastor back in the day. You know, oh, man. who imported all this. No, no I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not taking any credit <laughs> at all. No, that's awesome. That's so cool. I, I love how you even, you gave such a great example for something I say all the time, which is like, where can we find the understanding with our enemy? And like, I, yeah. I guess what I mean by that is, look, no one's going to argue for compassion for someone who's abusing their wife. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. No one like that's nor understanding. Does that make sense? Like Mm -hmm. no one's arguing for that. But the interesting thing is if you actually have the discipline of like trying to pause, quiet the emotions that are often anger, frustration, bitterness, you know, uh, maybe even revenge and also even justice, like trying to quiet even, even the justice part of you for a moment and say, why, why did this happen? Yep. And then actually do the work of like trying to figure that out. You recognize, wow, there are some factors here. They're not excuses for the person's behavior. Like they're not, mm-hmm. they're not reasons that they're not responsible for who, what the choices they've made, but there are tangible things we could change that could help this not be the next person's story. 
or at least exactly. move the needle so that it might not be the next person's story because the inadequacy that a man might feel in that culture not having a job might lead them to alcohol and substance abuse and then ultimately uh, I, I would I would assume the percentage likelihood of someone who's abusing alcohol and drugs toward being violent skyrockets at that point you know what I mean and so like oh yeah so you just look at all these markers and you're like wow okay so we can keep treating women <laughs> here and like yeah that work needs to be done on the back end but we can actually like mm -hmm. step in over here with a compassion and understanding for what's leading people into this and say wow if we can transform the jobs in this culture we could actually potentially help relieve this issue that requires an un like a love for even your enemy does that make sense like yeah. a, a, a compassion oh, yeah. <laughs> and an understanding even for people that you're deeply hurt by or that you've seen the effects of their evil you know what i mean um mm -hmm. and i think that's and such that's a where... mature faith to be able to come to that place to where you're you're able to do that because that, that it does take so much i think like pause oh, yeah. and ability and patience to do that and i think that's where you know so much again of you know, it took so long in my life of you know my faith and testament you know aside from work side of you know personal battles and struggles and suffering of asking i'm like where are you like where are you this justice warrior like fighting for my you know where is my wrath being delivered and when you take that out and have to finally say like nothing i can do for, you know, my personal vengeance or my personal, you know, sense of justice is ever going to outweigh, like, the reality of God's wrath and justice, mm. that's where you can kind of start, you know, standing back and saying, like, okay, I am called to love and, you know, serve and to be compassionate. But then also, you know, that's where, like, God did create the government. He did put things in, you know, in structure and ordained those things. And that's where, you know, I'm called to love and support and have compassion for, you know, people who are doing wrong, but also get to trust in them. Like God has set up a justice, you know, his own justice system, but also that is why we do need legislation and policies in place. And, yeah. you know, Steve, my brother and I will go back and forth on this. And at a lot of times when we're either disagreeing on something or angry about something, it's what if I just stopped and understood like what this person is coming through or what is driving that, you know, so much of anger is, we say it's an emotion, but underneath anger, like something's triggering it. It could be pride. It could be fear. And like what, what's causing us to, you know, spew out hate against our neighbor, right? Like yeah. whether it's a neighbor that is in our family or somebody, you know, an abuser across town and, you know, we're still called to visit them in prison and to love others. Like it is God's wrath and justice that will take care of everything else. Yeah. Um, it's just mm. up to us to kind of get on a, a level playing ground. And again, that, you know, Stephen will tell me like, Oh, you're so naive. You think, you know, it's just this happy go lucky world. And if everyone just loved each other, we'd be okay. And I think, no, absolutely <laughs> not. I don't think we shouldn't have, you know, a justice system in place, but I think it should be considering where people came from. Like you said, you know, what if we took a step back and actually looked at what's causing this to continue? Could we actually change it then and, yeah. and care for it? And that's what, what we're called to do as, as believers and as a church and you want to talk about like you know the church revolution like what would it look like if the church loved its neighbor without like accusing its neighbor or judging its neighbor because it looked different than us and like what would 
what would that do for social justice in America as well as nationally? For sure. Wow. All right. I'll get you out of here on this question. Yeah. It's not as much related to maybe your work, but maybe it is. And I just don't know. So there is a crisis. I don't know if it's necessarily considered a refugee crisis. I think it's more of an asylum seeker crisis at our border. Maybe correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong on that. Um, yeah. And, and definitely immigration to people seeking immigration. But I, I feel like the primary issue is asylum seekers. Is that fair? Or at least mm-hmm. what's what's been the influx at the southern border has been asylum seekers? Yeah. Um, at the southern border, definitely it's that asylum seeker or somebody seeking asylum. Um and then also definitely like the immigration issue and, and what that looks like. So that's a big piece of it. What are your thoughts on that, I guess? Or maybe yeah. are, you, are you connected to that work at all? And, or are you I, – I know in my experience a lot of social workers are connected through – you know, organizations crossing one another and such. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're connected to people who are connected to that work or, or doing that work. Um, uh, is it is it as bad as some of us have been told it is <laughs> in, in, in families being um, separated and in in some of the um, the images that we've seen, pictures of mm-hmm. of, you know, kids in you know, chain link fences, cages, whatever you want to call yeah. them, however you want to, you know, determine that to be called holding, mm-hmm. holding places. Um, it seems like we weren't adequately prepared for the influx of asylum seekers. And to a certain extent, I have understanding and compassion on our system for that. Yeah. Um, but it also doesn't necessarily seem like from my perspective and from some of the people I've talked to who have actually went there or been there, that um, that we're taking the adequate steps to to remedy the fact that we weren't prepared. I don't. I don't know. I, yeah. Tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah. Tell me where I'm no. right. Tell me what I maybe need to know, sure. or anyone else what they need to know. Yeah. So at my agency, um, we again like serve domestically, whatever that looks like. You know, people in poverty here in America. Um, it could be people experiencing homelessness. It could be you know addiction. It could be veterans needing help, um, single moms, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a refugee. And then we also, um, the other side of it is we do immigration. And so um, definitely have the firsthand knowledge of the, the immigration side. And, um, yeah, so I spent, let's see, two summers ago, I was down actually um, on the border, um, the Texas and Mexico border, and I got to work with um, some of the, the agencies that were actually, you know, receiving people directly out of ICE. Um, and so I spent a week there um, helping people that were being released by ICE um, that were awaiting their child now in the United States um, for their, to be declared whether or not they you know, would be allowed to stay here in America or okay. have to be deported back home. Um, so, you know, I've seen the, the places where they're holding people. Um, and, yeah, it's rough. Um, you, know, you get there, and it's ironic. Um, I landed, and and I walked out into um, McAllen, Texas, and you look around, and there, you know, there are country clubs. There's it looks like downtown um, area, and then tucked away in this this little pocket, um, right next to all the bars where people are going out on you know weekend nights, um, is a shelter for the people that are being released by ICE. Um, and mm. you know that organization is. It's stepping up and it's doing a lot. It's helping a lot. Um, but again, that's a private organization who had to say um, the government's response is not adequate enough. It's not helping. And 
um, yeah, um, you see kids, again, parents with their these kids just coming off of um, these ICE detention vans, getting dropped off at a bus station and, you know, being told this is a piece of paper and it has your court hearing date. And if you, you know, you better get there. Um, surprisingly, and something I didn't know even was, uh, you know, uh, people being released to wait in the country um, for their hearing. Uh, they have ankle monitors on. Um, and so I can track them and see and, and know that they're not, you know, sneaking off and staying illegally in the country then because they are actually being monitored and, and mm. have this device on them. Okay. Um, and so that's, you know, women, men. Um, yeah, it's uh, a lot of overcrowding as many, many, you know, news reports have come out and, and we've seen that. And, uh, so because of the overcrowding, um, people have been identified to have a connection, a legitimate connection here in the United States. It could be a family, it could be, you know, a relative, um, and that person has been contacted and agreed to house this person, um, who has come through the border and has been, you know, housed by vet, or being detained by ICE, um, and so they will release them and say, you know, good luck. You're at a bus stop. Now figure out, you know, navigate the American transportation system, and hopefully you can get from, you know, the south border of Texas up to Rhode Island, um, oh, and you wow. have to get there, you know, before your hearing date, um, and hopefully you can do that. And, you know, we have kids that are coming across, and it's like they don't have anybody <laughs> telling them how to navigate a, you know, a, a bus system or or even how to buy a bus ticket and, and mm. to get across. And it, it's a mess. Um, you know, they, I've met buses of people getting released again from the ICE detention center, or, um, kind of lockdown facility. And they come out and they are wearing the same clothes that they have been wearing for the entire, you know, month journey that it took or however long to get from one place up um, through the border and they're in the same clothes. They've not showered. They've been detained for, you know, a week or so. Um, and when they come off that bus and you get to greet them, you know, even just with a smile, I've had, you know, people just stop and say, like, this is the first smile I've seen since I got here. Like, thank you. And thank you for just saying hello. This is the first time somebody said hello. And it's like, regardless of your stance on immigration, like, these people are people. Like, you greet someone with a smile and you say hello to someone. Like, that is... What wow. value are we placing on someone's life that you can't even greet them, right? Like, that, yeah. that's just a, a sad reality for a lot of these people. And, again, the torture and and treacherous journey they've been on to even get up there. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's sad. And, and they, you know, they come and organizations are greeting them and, you know, kind of helping them assist with, like, okay, let's get your bus ticket. Let's do this. and. You know, it's 365 days a year, and it's not just, you know, 10 or 15 people getting released. It's hundreds a day that are coming to this organization and, you know, trying to navigate how they're going to get to their court hearing. And we know that, you know, it's about 90% of them will be deported back. Um, and that's a reality that people know coming wow. here. And that's how bad it is in other places right now that they know they could die on the journey here. There is rape, there is torture, there is kidnapping, and yet they know there's still a 90% chance that even if they got here, they're most likely going to be sent back. Mm -hmm. And they've lost all their money and life getting here, and it's still worth that 10% chance, like, just to maybe potentially happen. Wow. And so, like, that to me is, like, that says a lot about, you know, what is yeah. going on. And, 
and the reality and people say, you know, well, they're just crossing because then they can just sneak in. It's like most people, once they get across the border, you have to be in America to declare asylum, like that, that you're seeking asylum status. And so, you know, prior to a few different policies that were put in place, people would say like, well, they're just coming here. And it's like, well, they legally have to enter the country to declare the status for the process to begin. And so in order to even have the chance at a court hearing, you have to turn yourself into ICE. And so people are not hiding and sneaking and running away. The majority of people are going to an ICE agent and saying, please take me in to a detention center. You know, please take me so I can start this process. And so it's, it's not necessarily just, you know, people crossing a river and running for it. It's, there's a lot, a lot more intricacy and, you know, the conditions that these people are, are staying in, um, my last day down there, we had a girl, she was a one-year-old, and her dad was there, and he had um, his, like, two-year-old son, and his wife had been um, kidnapped back home, um, and then when she was released, um, they killed her in front of the family, and it was, oh. I mean, just this trauma, knowing that this family had witnessed, and so they made it here on the journey, you know, they were being released to go join their family until their court hearing, um, and this little girl was shivering, and it, you know, Texas summer that's very well over 100 degrees and we're like why is this girl shivering and um it turned out she had allergies while she was in the detention center and they do not treat her for just simple allergies that um she was losing consciousness and we had to rush her to the hospital and by the time they got her there um it was like life or death of you know a couple more hours and this girl would have died because of like something that Claritin could have like you treated or you know infant allergy you know Benadryl and it's like there's just so much and again who do you blame you know the policymakers the other countries or you know our immigration you know officers and it's like it's kind of all mixed in there of you know these other countries are causing some of this through corruption and so what do you do about that you know is it our place mm. to, to intervene but then also you know our immigration process has to get fixed too because you know the the other side of the immigration process is we're still processing people's, you know, visas applications from Mexico in the 90s today. Like, it, they're just getting called up. And so what does that mean for our immigration process of people who are doing it, oh, you know, the, the authorized way of going through and applying? It's, you know, what, what happens and your life is being threatened. And so they've changed some of the policies yeah. where, you know, you have to either be held in Mexico while you're waiting to cross the border for asylum status, or you have to be denied asylum status from other countries surrounding it as you work up here. But, you know, people are still running for their lives. And just because you leave one country, that's a little bit worse for the other one. Like, you know, how much better off are you there? And wow. and what is that country doing to assist you? And again, it's not, you know, it's not America's burden to, be the answer and again the savior of all people but it's like well, what are we doing then for those that we can't save and, and can't help yeah. you know how are we advocating or supporting um well what are the some of the know, unforced errors like not giving a kid benadryl to me it, it comes down to the sports analogy of an unforced error it's one thing yeah. if the circumstance is just so great that like wow this is going to be a hard a hard one to draw up a play for does that make sense but it's like if mm-hmm. you hike the ball and yeah. fumble it okay well now you just totally screwed yourself like pick up the ball like yeah. you don't don't fumble the ball like to me not giving a, a, an infant benadryl like that's an unforced error like that's just that that doesn't oh, yeah. that doesn't that there's easy solutions and maybe i'm yeah. maybe i'm ignorant of 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 those solutions but it would seem to me there's 
there's some solutions there. Whereas this is definitely a complex issue. It's not, it's not a one, you know, there's not a magic, you know, bullet to just fix it all. You know what I mean? Or, you know, a one, a one answer, one size fits all answer. But, um, Okay, so here's the deal. I have like a hundred follow-ups to what you just said, but we need to end it here. So next, maybe next time I'll have you on if you're if you're open to coming back, and yeah. we can talk strictly about the border because I do think I do think some people have a very particular way of seeing that, and um, mm-hmm. and, and that might be helpful to kind of expand what's happening in that particular realm. And I'm sure it's changing, and there's different realities too. So. Yeah. Does Absolutely. that sound good? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Shannon, thank you for being on. You you were yeah were great. This was this was a great conversation. I'm so glad I reached out to you. And um, absolutely. May God bless you in your work and um, stay strong you. on the on the tough days. Stay strong because I think what you're doing is really meaningful and it matters for so many people. And I know I appreciate what you're doing and so many others do. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I'll say you know again. CFD was a was an interesting place and a lot of <laughs> stuff that happened there. But you know, when I look back and you know get to to look at things that have happened and throughout high school and stuff, and just seeing you know a lot of just a lesson there of like it doesn't necessarily have to be you know uh, the quantity of people we are converting or chasing after or bringing to events or how flashy it is, but it's just like this bottom line fairness of like the gospel in action and just you know that's something that i learned from you from Brittany, and you know from mm. from your guys time there so you know i, well, I appreciate you. what you guys are doing so and you know you guys definitely left uh, an impact you know years later still on me so well um i'm honored that i had a partial impact Brittany probably had more than i did though to be honest <laughs> <laughs> just so you know if you're, if you're listening we're referencing my wife Brittany. so yeah <laughs> those who don't know but well shannon you have a good rest of your day thank you so much yeah absolutely i'll talk to you later all right bye bye well there you have it another episode in the books i'm so thankful to shannon rosedale for being on with me we will definitely do that again and go deeper because i'm sure while I was even talking, you had like all kinds of questions, things we could have gone deeper on. And we, uh, I think, need to have a deeper conversation about um, the immigration process at the border and some of her knowledge in that. I would love to learn some more about that. So hopefully uh, I'll get Shannon back on here soon. But big thanks to her and so excited that you could join me for this episode of the podcast. Uh, Also, just so you know, I have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash beyond boundaries podcast. Would love for you to help out financially if that's something you're able to do. And if not, everyone is able to hit the like button, the subscribe button, rate it, review it, send it to your friends, get people talking about it, you know, all that stuff. So if you're able to do that, go out and do that. Getting the word out makes a huge difference. Um, If you'd like to find the uh, show notes for this episode, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.